two texts this morning. First, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And then the 139th Psalm, verses 13 to 16, Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This is the word of our God. Today, interrupting our series on knowing God, the existence and attributes of God, I'm calling on us to rightly know ourselves in light of knowing God. I will return to the series we're working on for likely three more sermons. But today, as we are reminded, today, on the 50th anniversary of the infamous Roe v. Wade decision. And it's being overturned. Let's rejoice. But let's also lament. That a right to abortion in the U.S. Constitution has been found to be an error, and not a small one, has not ended abortion. The sad reality is some states have already passed laws more drastic and draconian than Roe v. Wade. 
Some states are now marketing themselves as safe havens for abortion. Private companies and corporations are offering financial assistance for employees to seek abortions that they can be reimbursed to travel. And besides that, prescription drugs being marketed more aggressively, so this simply takes place in the privacy of one's home. That said, what do we observe here in the year of our Lord, 2023? Six, in 2016, a chilling article was published in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Two professors, one from the University of Milan, the other from the University of Melbourne and Oxford, argued for the morality and legitimization and legalization of afterbirth abortion. The authors don't hide the agenda. They're calling for the legal killing of newborn children. It's the same argument, in essence, of Peter Singer, formerly of Princeton University, and a medical ethicist. The authors explain they prefer the term afterbirth abortion to infanticide because their term makes it clear that the argument comes down to the birth of a child is not a morally significant event. They're justifying arguments. The moral status of an infant is equivalent to that of a fetus. That is, neither can be considered a person in a morally relevant sense. sense. Secondly, it's not possible to damage a newborn by preventing her from develop, developing potentiality to be a person in a morally relevant sense. Their conclusion, the moral status of an infant is equivalent to that of a fetus in the sense that both lack properties that justify the attribution of a right to life for an individual. I'm old enough to remember when people call this reasoning so clearly articulated here and said, when we said we were worried about the direction, said, oh, you fools, it'll never come to that. The only foolishness is thinking that it wouldn't. We see the evidence of some of this moral reasoning in the crises around Planned Parenthood clinics a few years ago where a doctor explains, didn't realize she was on camera, uh, the, in chilling detail, the plan to harvest organs for sale. Welcome to the brave new world. When Allied forces liberated concentration camps, General Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered all ordinary German citizens of nearby towns and villages to walk through the camps to see what they had allowed and facilitated. If this doesn't shock the conscience, what will? 
more recently. In fact, earlier in January, an interesting article appeared, of all places, in the New York Times. Titled, Does Life, When Does Life Start? Question mark. Hmm. Subtitled, A Post-Row Conundrum. I like the sound of the word conundrum. It rolls off the tongue nicely. A conundrum is a mental challenge, a difficult thing to process and figure out. Of course, the article then led to letters about the article. One of which was from a now retired medical professor at Columbia University. Here's what he said. Two attributes are widely accepted as criteria to be considered human. So here's his two points to define a human. First, an awareness through all our senses that we exist and that we exist within a world of objects. So self-awareness and somehow distinguishing me from other things. Second, the ability of the brain to use that information from our senses to then create ideas and make predictions about how to survive in the world. Well, now that, to quote Al Mohler, is an amazing statement. You notice the criteria, both, as Mohler says, extremely problematic. The first one, he says, is an awareness to our senses that we exist and we exist within a world of objects. But wait just a minute. That would be the normal human experience, certainly after birth. But the, the problem here is can't draw the line. Unwilling to draw the line. There are persons who are human beings fully made in the image of God who have never gained that consciousness or may have had it and lost it in some catastrophic accident this does not make them non-humans, non-persons. The professor is quite blunt. What this tells us is that a fetus cannot perceive most sensations, the first attribute of being human, until at least six months after fertilization, the ability to formulate ideas. The second attribute of humans probably does not occur hear this, until after birth when the newborn's brain begins to correlate all of the sensations into a coherent experience of its surroundings. Now lest you think this is purely an academic exercise, let me point out that Gallup did a poll, does a poll, on the issue of values and beliefs virtually every year. Since 2016, here's the, the stats in 2016, and I do this in brief. The position on the moral, morality of abortion. In 2016, 43% of Americans saw abortion as morally acceptable. 47% saw it as morally wrong. Got that? 43% acceptable, 47% wrong. 
in 2022, those who thought it morally acceptable had increased by nine points, 52%. Those who thought it was morally wrong dropped the same number of points, 38%. Now, the guests, please understand, I'm not here to deliver a political diatribe. The stories and the stats are merely to point out the problem. How are we as Christians to respond to this? How are we to live in this culture? And what should engage us as we look at the culture? The text we first read, Genesis 3, and even to an extent, Psalm 139, our struggle here, friends, is we believe that our rebellion leads to freedom and life. Throughout our culture, this is not even questioned. What I think, what I want, if I'm not allowed to do that, you're denying my humanity and I'll never flourish and I'll never be what I want to be. So the only way for that to happen is you've got to get out of my way and let me run my life. Now, folks, please understand, I am a big advocate of live and let live. I'm not looking to manage anybody else's life. But I will tell you, that is an absolutely untenable position. And we're witnessing that on a gargantuan scale today. Some of us remember when the argument over homosexuality and sexual orientation came out like this. We just want to be tolerated and accepted. And now, six to eight years after those words, tolerance is no longer enough. Now you must affirm verbally, publicly, all the time. Mm. Our rebellion, my friends, always leads to death-dealing bondage. Now I'm going to take these two texts and pull them together. And there was purpose, believe it or not, some of you caught, well, I'd say most of you caught it. The reading we did, beginning, Genesis, God creates. For the sermon, Genesis 3, fall. Psalm 139, we're not accidents. Just consider these things with me. The account of the entrance of sin into the world is pretty much familiar to those who have been Christians any length of time, right? The first thing we see is the nature of the temptation. The serpent, Satan, comes to the woman and begins in this way. Let's first doubt God's Word. Has God 
said. And then a misquotation, right? Has he said you can't have anything to eat here? Well, it's the extreme, right? So the doubt of God's Word leads then to the denial of God's Word. And whatever you think of Eve's response, here was the denial. You will not die. And then the addendum. God is keeping you from this because if you do this, here's the temptation. You will be as gods. Knowing good and evil. Understand, my friend, it's not that Adam and Eve didn't have knowledge of good and evil. God, by His Word, had told them. Right? Everything here is good. See that one? Leave it alone. Everything good. Leave that alone. The temptation is the temptation to autonomy. I will determine good and evil. So the word doubted, the word denied, and finally the word disobeyed. She took and she ate, and she gave to her husband, and he did take and eat. Now I know some of you are going, you believe that really happened? Unapologetically, yes. Literal Adam, literal Eve, literal Satan, real tree, real fruit, real God, real consequences. Well, what about, what about? I don't have time right now for your what about. You want to have that discussion? We can have that discussion. But my friend, if we don't, here's the reality. If we don't hold on to some anchors as Christians, we're going to drift. There's no way around it. First thing you better hold on to as an anchor is you're not an accident. God made you. This world is not unintentional. God created. If you don't hold on to that, you're going to drift. Second thing you better hold on to is how we got in the mess. And the mess is our fault. Well, I didn't do it. Adam and Eve did. Yeah, but you're related. And don't for a moment think you'd have done better. You wouldn't have. The nature of the temptation is always to doubt what God has said, to deny what God has said, to disobey what God has said. The outcome of the rebellion is distance. They hear God and they run from Him. They hide from God. Now I know, I hear all this talk, this mushy, squishy, vaporous spirituality that folks seem to love so much. And it's that way because it's not anchored anything except themselves. God is personal. God is infinite. God is infinite personality. 
He exists and everything else depends on its existence because of his will. And our rebellion makes us hide from God. Our rebellion makes life difficult, pain, struggle, labor, sweat of the brow. Now some of this tasks us more than others. I changed out the deadbolt and door handle on our front door, and here's what I determined in that process. I finally realized what's going on. I am the Barney Fife of carpentry. Some of you know what I'm saying when I say that. I'm actually not bad if there's somebody there telling me what to do and exactly how to do it. But left to my own devices, it rarely works out well. That job should probably have taken a competent individual about 45 minutes. You don't need to know how long it took me. Difficulty in life, struggles. And folks, even when you know and you do the right thing, not everything works out well, right? There are so many things outside our control. And it leads to death, death as the penalty. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. But it's not only that the sin of Adam and Eve denying God's authority led to death as individuals, but it further led to an ongoing rebellion that leads to a culture of death. This is why you'll read in the Scripture, all who hate me love death. This is what God says. David in glorious poetry expands and explains the greatness of our God in that 139th Psalm, as well as shows us how we are to see ourselves. We will not take time to examine all of the 139th Psalm. I'll tell you, you could spend time a lot worse than making that your meditation for several days. The God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3 is the God of the 139th Psalm. The omniscient God who knows himself perfectly, who knows everything and everyone perfectly. The omnipresent God who is always with us no matter where we go. We cannot escape his presence. The omnipotent God, the wonder of our creation, the wonder of providence, our days numbered and established by God, that God not only shapes us in the womb, He then rules over us in our living. The power of God is seen in the power of the gospel, the gospel being the power of God unto salvation. This is the God of Genesis, the God of the 139th Psalm, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, David not only teaches us about the nature of God, which many today deny, he teaches us about the nature of man, which is also denied. Now, some will argue that someone like David, a primitive, 3,000 years ago, 
doesn't have the knowledge we have today and isn't thus a valid guide for anything. Consider these words, Errol Hulse. David did not possess the scientific knowledge that we have, but he sensed the wonder of conception and birth. The complexity involved in the forming of a human being is stupendous. The arrangement of components, including over 200 bones, 600 muscles, 10,000 auditory nerve fibers, 2 million optic nerve fibers, 100 billion nerve cells, and 400 billion feet of blood, that's my word, capillaries, packed into a unit? Huh. The chemical instructions for the construction of a complete human exists in every fertilized human egg and just one chromosome may contain information equivalent to 500 million words. That's about 5,000 books, if you're wondering. If all that's involved in the DNA for one human body were unraveled, it would reach to the sun and back multiple times. The incredible detail of this magnitude that somehow that came by chance or evolved. How finely is a person woven together in the womb? Included in that creation is the giving of gifts for every, for instance, one, now listen to this, one in every 500 million will possess the gifts exercised by Beethoven. Or Mozart. And yet David grasps this, right? Not the detail, but the reality. There is something wondrous and extraordinary in conception and growth and birth and human life. So why does the Lord tell us by this poetry? And what does He tell us by this and the historical events of the garden? One thing He tells us is that all human beings reflect the image of God. There's a lot written on this. You read in Genesis 1, these words, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I got the idea that Moses wanted you to get a point here. He repeats this four times. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Well, how's that different than the first thing? It's not. Remember, redundancy in the Old Testament is meant to get your attention. Male and female, he created them. So what do we mean when as believers we declare that we bear the image and likeness of God. Now some of you are in uh, 
Lance's class kingdom through covenant, and they actually spend some time on that. So this is old hat for you. If you want to check out for a minute, I'll be done shortly for those who haven't had that benefit, all right? Image. Most likely, image here reflects man's relationship to God. It's best thought of in terms of sonship. Man and woman are created by and have a special relationship to God. Image is this connection. Us to God. We bear His image. Likeness refers to man's relationship to creation. It's best thought of in terms of kingship. Actually, more specifically, as servant kingship. Men and women are created to reflect God's likeness to the rest of the world. Now, in light of the fall, the image has been damaged, but the image has not been eradicated. It is still there. Even in our failure and our fallenness, in our brokenness, and folks, you do grasp this, don't you? Our brokenness is a relative thing. And varied according to time and, and uh, age and all sorts of circumstances, right? All of us have failed systems, if you will, problems because of living as fallen creatures in a fallen world. But my friend, this doesn't mean the image is gone. Genesis 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. Now listen to this, in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. It's an echo, looking back. When Noah is given a restatement of the cultural mandate, the Lord knows man's predilection towards violence, and this is what he says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. God is the one who defines when death can be applied. The reality of the image of God means we must never treat another human in a cavalier, thoughtless way, even when they're cavalier and thoughtless. Every person you meet is going to live forever. The second thing that comes out of this, I believe, not only do all humans reflect the image of God, but the fall Puts, puts this in us, the ongoing drive for autonomy. It makes men and women seek to control the issues of life and death. Having thrown off the restraint of God and our God-given role, we continue the reckless attempt to be like God, knowing good and evil. And what we mean is deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. We want pleasure without responsibility. We want complete autonomy over our bodies, our lives. We want the power of life and death to be in our hands. Thus, we will arrogate to ourselves the right to decide whether our children live or die, by extension, whether elderly will live or die, and by further extension, whether, whether those who are injured, handicapped in some way, whether they will live or die. A European nation recently bragged that they had eliminated Down syndrome. 
No, my friend. They did not eliminate Down syndrome. They merely made it policy to abort every child who had the indication of having Down syndrome. That is not the elimination of the syndrome. That is genocide. Make no mistake. For all the attempts to hide the reality, initially by speaking of blobs of cells or blobs of tissue, and now using technical words to mask the reality, calvarium rather than head or skull for those who are harvesting. Further, we've decided to celebrate those who end their children's lives as brave or thoughtful. You see, my friends, we want to avoid suffering or the prospect of being a burden to our families. So we not want not only the right to end our own lives, but to make others accomplices in our self-murder. We want this power. And I'm here to tell you, folks, I don't trust anybody for those kinds of decisions. All who hate me love death. My friends, are you, are you paying attention? We are living in a culture that loves death. For all the statements to the contrary, it's a culture that loves and embraces death. Child's an inconvenience, don't want them, kill them. Use whatever terms you want to, but that's the essence of what's done. Senior adults who are taking a lot of extra care, maybe it'd be better if we got them a pill. And then I hear folks my age and older say things like this, Christian people, well, I just wish they'd give me a pill so that when I get to that point, I could just take it and I'm not a burden to anybody. And they want to be thought of as noble. My friend, did it ever occur to you that God may have purpose in your inabilities to let others learn something about sacrifice and service? And by the by, where did you get the notion that you're completely independent? Anyway. Eh? <laughs> our interdependence is so much a matter of our creation. You see... The matter of being pro-life is not just about science or of being human. It's primarily about being creatures made by a creator who is neither some distant being who made us and walked away, nor a flawed being who is nothing more than a larger, more powerful version of ourselves. We answer that this is because we do believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. Those attributes should make us tremble. They should be our undoing, except we see in them present the person of Christ and know that God the Father set His love on us and God the Son has died for us and God the Spirit has regenerated us. And we are doubly not our own, Christian. We didn't make ourselves, and we don't save ourselves. Now please hear me in this. Why am I 
putting these things together. Because, my friend, our rebellion has led to our brokenness, and it messes up everything, right? We have a hard time getting along with one another at times, even the person to whom we've pledged our very life, right? Sometimes your kids are annoying, right? It's okay to admit it, they know. Sometimes your parents are annoying, right? Some of you are terrified to move right now. Co-workers. You know, the other thing I've discovered, church people can really be a pain. I heard something recently. I think this is really good. Just bear this in mind. When you agree to become a member of a church, you've agreed to be sinned against. Well, well, what do you mean? You still have sin. All the stuff about forbearance and forgiveness has no meaning unless you understand that we are still sinners saved by grace. But my friend, I'm trying to make you see this in this way. If you don't understand who God is and what He's about, you don't understand these other issues the way you ought to understand them. Listen to the words of Packer from his book, Knowing God. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. I would underline that. Knowing about God is crucially important for understanding and living our lives. It would, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, plop him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, you sense yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Oh, folks, what a horrible way. Waste your life. And then lose your soul. Oh, friend, are you His? Have you trusted Him? Please, please hear me and what I mean by this. Being pro-life will not save your soul. Or if you prefer the term, being an abortion abolitionist will not save your soul. There's only one means to that, and that's through Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But oh, my friend, if we embrace that, what we see is rather than expecting others to die for our convenience, our Savior died for us when we were unworthy. He takes the punishment to us. How can we then live any differently than a sacrificial life for the sake of others around us who bear His image and who may bear His name? 
See, pro-life isn't just about the science, though the science is impressive. It's about the Lord's right to define when life can be taken and when it must be protected. My brothers and sisters, we are curiously and wondrously made. There's a God to whom you must give an account. Let me close in this way. I doubt, seriously, that in preaching this sermon, I've not somehow touched on somebody's life who's been affected by abortion. Either you've had one yourself, you have a family member, a loved one, somebody you know who's been affected. Please hear me when I say this. Hear me. Didn't hear anything else. Hear this. There is full, total forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've done a terrible thing. Folks, we've all done terrible things. Jesus came to die for terrible thing-doing people. Believe in Him. Trust Him. And know that you're His. Oh Lord, grant that today.